welcome to another episode of Clientships Customer Experience Superheroes. I'm Christopher Brooks and I'll be your host. In this podcast series, we bring you the talents, the techniques, the tools and the tips for CX leaders. We help you understand what you need to get ahead and how to make the most of it in today's world of customer experience. In this episode, we're joined by the incredible Gunjan Allen. Um, Gunjan is a a tour de force in the world of customer experience, an absolute fabulous contributor to the community with many causes she's supporting, as well as specific understanding of the very important area of public service customer experience. We join Gunjan in discussion on this and many other topics. So here we are, we are with Gunjan Allen. Hello Gunjan, how are you? Hi, Christopher. Really good. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm fine, thank you. And I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. We actually bumped into each other yesterday when you were you were chairing a, a global um, debate on customer centricity. So it feels like we're talking a lot at the moment, but uh, <laughs> we are on the other side of the world. So hopefully um, the technology will, will hold up for us. And we've got quite a number of topics I want to talk to you about. This particular podcast is about finding those kind of customer experience superpowers. I know that you're involved in a number of things that kind of help to bring to light some of those superpowers. But before we kick off, just in case some of our audience aren't aware of of you, would you mind just giving kind of whistle-stop introduction to to you and and how you arrived in the world of customer experience, please? Um, You know, I always tell everyone my uh, career pathway hasn't been linear at all. It's like a squiggly little, squiggly lines, actually. I come from marketing, uh, marketing background, um, and I've uh, headed marketing functions and marketing departments in the private sector. And then I got a gig in the Department of Transport here in one of the state departments in Queensland. I was leading their CX project, their customer experience project, which involved a very large scale journey mapping exercise for all of the different transport modes uh, that they operate and then that kind of led me to get another opportunity or an assignment in the health department one of the state government divisions here as well in Queensland so it's kind of been an evolution from marketing into CX and I think you know they're both quite connected actually very connected because they both really thrive on understanding customer and behavior it felt like a, a natural evolution for me were those environments where the customer was already considered a sort of a priority or, or or was there some work to be done in in raising the value of the customer yeah you know great point both i've worked now in the private sector and i've worked in the public sector and i really think Customer centricity depends on how involved the execs are, the executive team is, and that sets the culture. So actually, there is no, you know, there is no difference in that regard, whether you're in the private sector or the public sector. I've had to fight quite hard to put the customer in the room, even some of the private sectors that I've worked in, you know, I've had to push very hard with the board for certain companies. And in the public sector, I've been lucky enough to work for some very progressive 
departments that have already been on a journey uh, of customer centricity. And I think that's the other thing. It really depends on how long organizations have been on this journey around customer centricity because it doesn't happen overnight. If you join an organization and they are in year one of, you know, of being customer first, then I can assure you it is going to be an uphill battle. So it really depends upon maturity of the organization. And that's, that's a very good point. I remember doing a piece of work with a recruitment agency. And one of the things we identified is that actually you talk about going on a journey. Quite often the people who you need to start the customer transformation need to be resilient, need to be good at opening doors. They're not necessarily the same people you need to complete the journey or to mature the journey where it gets to actually developing advanced and brand differentiated experiences. So would you say that's fair or do you think a leader in customer experience can go all the way through the journey? I think it's teamwork. So Mm -hmm. customer experience doesn't happen in silos. It doesn't happen in the marketing department. It doesn't just happen in the sales department. It needs to be cross-functional team of CX champions. So you can have a leader, you can have a leader leading it, but you still need champions to come along on that journey. And those champions need to be multifunctional, cross-functional. That's when an organization will realize the true value of being customer-centric. And it needs to also be very much a part of the HR function, people and culture. You know, because it needs to, your hiring practices need to ensure that the people that you're hiring actually have the relevant skill sets to drive that customer centricity at an operational level. So, you know, you've got to have leaders at that strategic level and you need to have that cross-functionality. And then at an operational level, you've got to have champions who help drive that vision really interesting point you make there about recruitment we spoke to nate brown a while ago and he talks about the concept of a house with a gate and people sitting on the fence and he said you know you you absolutely can develop people but there comes a point where you need to close the gate to the wrong sort of people you need to make sure you're bringing in the sorts of people that value respect and admire your customer ambitions as opposed to keep thinking that you can convert them into it i mean would you you say that's fair a hundred percent christopher you know i'm a big believer in soft skills i don't even i don't even know why we call them soft skills to be (laughs) honest like you know we say soft skills and hard skills they're important skills you Mm. know they're really important skills to have being empathetic that curiosity um, which drives innovation i think we need to be more childlike we need to employ people who are more childlike who ask the why, who are not afraid to challenge the status quo, you know, and that's a bit, that those are really hard skills to teach. You either are or you aren't. That's just a fact of life. You can teach someone to use Outlook or to be a graphic designer. You can teach them those tools, but you can't change the core personality mm of a person or who they are. And I'm not saying it's a wrong thing or a bad thing. I'm just saying, you know, you really need to be 
cognizant of what are your values like what are the values of your organization and then what sort of people do you want to bring in who will align to your values and that's not a right or a wrong thing it's you know it, it gives an we're talking about experience it's a great employee experience for someone to be part of something that they believe in so it works both ways here's a question for you because it's just prompted something i remember when i was quite young being out we were running a project for a client uh, and the sales manager was with me and i'd noticed that the work that we were doing was giving them a very good short-term return but actually their customers wouldn't come back the following year and, and we were out at dinner we were just talking about it and i kind of questioned that why, why are we doing this because i think actually you'd get more value if you were to do the right thing by the customer in the short term and they would come back and get repeat business. And I'll never forget that the person kicking me under the table saying, shush, don't ask that sort of question. I fast forward a few years. And when I first set up with my business partner, I think one of the first meetings we went to, we were in the room and, and I asked a couple of questions and he leant across and he said, you're going to get us thrown out in a minute. And when afterwards we won the business, we were told it was because we'd made them really think. The questions had made them think in a way they hadn't done before. I think I'm pretty resilient, but if that happens enough times, I stop asking those questions. I stop asking the why and I just conform. So if that's happening, that must be happening to other people as well. I mean, how do you nurture that ability to feel you can speak without, you know, being kicked under the table or, you know, yanked yanked by your business partner? And how do you do that? Because I'm sure there's great questions out there to be asked, but they just stay in people's heads. Oh, wow. That is a... That's a really deep question and, you know, I can spend hours talking about it because it, it comes down to psychological safety, you know, it, it comes down to, again, it comes down to your leaders, it comes down to empathetic leaders who provide that psychological safety for staff or for people, I, I hate, I don't like the terminology staff, for people who, um, to ask the why respectfully you mm-hmm. know it, ha- it has to be mutually respectful you know there are lots of ways that you can nurture that kind of uh, culture if that's something that you want to really build part of that is ensuring that there is zero tolerance on bullying and harassment as an example and now we're going to the cultural drivers that actually lead to that customer sensitivity it's to do with making sure that again coming back to your hiring practices is that you hire leaders who who are empathetic don't use the word i use the word we and and have all those soft skills mm. which are so important and so lacking but yeah uh, christopher it's it's a it's a great question you know mm. and um i think psychological safety is something that isn't talked about yeah. a lot but is needed for organizations that want to be innovative they want their people to be curious uh, and they want to innovate but then at the same time um you see so many practices which in organizations which do the reverse i think as you say it's deep and it's probably a real commitment that has to come across the organization yeah i would hope with greater inclusivity better consideration to well-being these are these are things that will become more natural within an organization and maybe employees will 
probe the employer at the interview and kind of say, can I understand, is, is this a place where I can express my thoughts without fear of retribution if they are, to your point, you know, respectfully put forward? Otherwise, how do you get the best out of your people? I think, I think what you've tapped into there is one of those key CX superpowers of leaders, uh, CX leaders today, is that kind of, you know, say that they need to be empathetic. It's not just recognising what other people are going through, but it's actually really appreciating the impact that their actions have on deep-rooted belief systems of people. Yeah, it's, um, you know, we talk about customer centricity, right, uh, as CX leaders a lot. And we talk about what drives our customers, what motivates our customers. But in the reverse, what drives your people who are working internally where you know they're not driven by a certain role title that you're given they're all individuals Mm. so a leader will literally segment their own people you know they do that that internal segmentation they understand the drivers and the motivations they understand that your people are all on different journeys and different pathways in their career life cycle some people might not want to be promoted or might not want to you know, move up the chain, but they might get joy. We talk about customer joy and, you know, that thrill point. They might just get joy if you acknowledge them, sure. you know, once in a while. Some employees or some of your people might not like that open acknowledgement. They might be a bit more shy and they might like acknowledgement when you have your one-on-one meetings. So to do that, you have to be a people person. You've got to be mm. empathetic mm. to be to be a good leader. I love this topic because, you know, it, it, we talk about customer centricity and we talk about how to make organizations customer centric. With that comes a lot of change management, right? Because you're asking people to think differently. You're asking yeah. people to do things differently. With change management comes empathy. Comes, yeah. It comes... It, comes with that understanding that everyone within your organization is going to work differently. So how do you take them along on that journey? If you can start that change by understanding not where you're going to, but what those individuals are having to give up, because that's the change as well. What am I going to stop doing? Because quite often that's just assumed that that stuff you don't want to do anymore. And a good example, we work with the government department and they wanted to and understandably they wanted to get better with their data so they can be predictive about regulating these particular group of people to make sure they were providing a higher quality of of standards to to do that the data needs to be in a better quality and it may even prove that it was way back when they were kind of coached at university things weren't going right so they brought in the, the people who were managing the data and said to them you know we are going to transform you into futurologists you're going to become insight geeks it's going to be an incredible thing and i'll never forget it because um someone in the room didn't put their hand up and just sat there and went can we start by you just asking me how my day is once in a while (laughs) and you go wow you know kind of you've just missed it so much and i think that's where perhaps the cx leader that that, that's what that empathy means isn't it's very different to perhaps if you are you know, a leader in the sales team and you've got to be seen as kind of motivational and the, the one that people want to kind of follow because that's that's the prize you're going for. Not to say that's a modern day, you know, need anymore, but kind of you, you, it's a different set of skills, isn't it? Kind of, just going to come on to another question about difference because you mentioned you worked in the private sector and the public sector. Mm. And customer mm. experience 
works in both mm. places but you know what, what are the obvious differences between the two you're, you're well well positioned to, to give us your um, ideas on this I think one of the biggest difference is probably that commerciality mm -hmm. so you know the drivers to be customer centric is different I think in the private sector compared to the public sector okay so, you know, in the private sector, you are extremely competitive market like that. You, you work for certain organizations that are trying to survive or trying, you know, trying to compete. So that in itself is a driver to want to set yourself apart. And when that driver exists, I think it becomes easier sometimes to instill behaviors and to instill uh, values that lend itself naturally to customer centricity. I think when you come to the public sector, the sheer uh, scale of the operations and the size of the operate, you know, of the operations has uh, natural, I would say, barriers to customer centricity. Mm -hmm. You know, on top of there being limited that whole commercial angle to working in the public sector. So again, I think the behaviors, the drivers are different in both the settings and the scale of the sheer size of the organizations is, sure. is very different. Because when you talk private, you, you know, you can work for large multinational corporations or you can work for mid-level private organizations or really small. But when you talk the public sector, there is no in between mm. <laughs> you know yeah. they're usually quite complicated they're usually dealing with legacy systems someone said to me that if you're running a customer experience program for a supermarket or for an airline you've got a boundary you're responsible for that flight yes you know that they're going there for a holiday yes you know they're going to the supermarket to, to get the food to, to come home but actually you can put a fence around where you start and where you stop but in public sector, it's blurred. I was talking to a, a chap, David Wells, who used to be um, head of customer experience in the fire brigade. And actually, mm -hmm. when you put a boundary between you and the ambulance service, you, you treat it very differently. You actually say, right, that's my task complete. We fulfilled our requirements, hand the person over. But actually, mm -hmm. if the ambulance team had had the person handed over at a different state, the chances mm -hmm. of survival or the impact it has when they go onwards would be different. Would you say that's fair that there's a, there's, the boundaries are a lot harder to see? You, you have a, a greater responsibility for things you're not even controlling. Yeah, totally. And I think if you start talking in terms of citizen experience, mm -hmm. right, and you look at your life cycle as a human being, you know, you're born, you go through a certain journey, you do your schooling, you do your education, you go through your, your, your life cycle. Each of those life cycles that you're interacting with actually deals with completely different departments or state governments, sure. right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. But as a person, as a human being, you don't care. You just, <laughs> you, you know, if you start comparing now with the private sector and you talk about the airlines, yes, there are silos that exist. And even in retail, I think there are silos that exist within the, you know, within the organization. But when they map out their customer's journey, you know, it would still, it, it wouldn't involve various other depart, other departments or other mm. massive other organizations. You know, we still have silos in the public sector, not only within your own department or your division, but outside, 
when you look at it from a person's life cycle, you know, the journey that they've been through. So you look at when someone dies, mm-hmm. just as a, you know, as an example, you're grieving the family, you know, the family's grieving. You don't only have to deal with the department that deals with your debt, with the person's debt certificate, but you also then have to make sure that everything else is turned off literally like turned off like mm-hmm. the license is cancelled or you know all the other things it would make so much sense if you had a digital wallet right like a like a citizen like my wallet of all the different irrespective of which department is looking after it so i think mm-hmm. therein you lies just, the big difference <laughs> you can just drop it into the recycle bin and that will be yeah that'll be it. <laughs> And I, I mean, I do see um, in the UK, the, the UK passport office um, gets mm. huge applause for it, the quality of its the experience it provides its customers. I find that tremendous because in the private sector, obviously, you've got those, you know, the, the motivations can be competitive advantage or growth. And, and you'd hope you do it in a way that encourages your competitors to become better at what they do as well. But mm. I can't go anywhere else legally to get a passport. I can only go to mm-hmm. one place. So it mm. could be as bad as it wants. But I think that the lovely thing is it obviously connects it into, you know, societal importance and recognises to make me a happier citizen. Then mm. actually that's an experience that's got to be good. You know, it's quite, it's such an emotive, important thing, getting your passport to travel the world. It's, you know, it's an expression of freedom. and it, So therefore it, it shouldn't be made to feel like it's uncomfortable. It should be something that recognises that. And I find public sector areas that almost see their, what their role in that customer's life is are incredible. I think they're just amazing when they kind of, they zing because they're only doing it to make our lives better. You know, when you think about it, a lot of you know, commercial companies, if you said to them, well, you, do you do customer experience because you think it's the right thing to do or do you do it because you know it will give you competitive advantage? You kind of know what the answer is going to be sometimes. Not always, of course. There's some brilliant organisations yeah. out there. But in the public sector, you haven't got that argument. So it's got to Correct. be because we want to make this person's life better. Correct. It's, you know, it's looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So you've got your basic needs as in, you know, uh, flexibility of work, your wages, your remunerated plan. And then as you go up those hierarchy of need, it's that purpose, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot Mm -hmm. of the public sector servants feel connected to that purpose of making, you know, the environment that we all exist in a better environment. So that's what drives uh, public servants or that's what drives the public sector. Mm -hmm. And of course, Mm -hmm. the government of the day as well, right? Just a bit of a gear change now. So um, we know you because you contribute a lot towards the uh, customer experience community. When it comes to your, what the area you're involved in, you're not dealing with end users, are you? You're way back the value through the value chain. So I, I work quite a lot with production supply and, and manufacturers. So to recognise some of the challenges, but would you mind just spelling out kind of what some of the big challenges are when you're so far away from almost the end customer? I recognise you've got customers in the middle, but you know what you might perceive as the end user. Yeah, I think a good way of describing it is that, you know, I've worked in organizations where they have customers and consumers. So customers are the ones who actually are making that decision of whether they want to interact with you or the decision of what services 
or products they want from you. And then you have the consumers who actually consume those service or the product. The challenges are that sometimes you're reliant on business case scenarios or user case scenarios to come from your customer as opposed to the consumer. Unless, of course, you spend you know, money and go down and do contextual research and a lot of the research to understand that consumer angle or end user angle. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other challenge is a bit of a territory game. No, there are what? customers, or there are consumers. <laughs> so the consumers for us become cus- you know, customers sure. for our customers. Does that yep. make sense? Yeah. So it's that territorial game. Mm-hmm. Why are you talking to them? <laughs> <laughs> they actually are customers, and you're like, you know, they're they're all our customers. Mm-hmm. If we work together, mm-hmm. we're actually helping you to deliver a better service. Yeah. To your customer, who's our who's consuming the services. That's a challenge as well, the whole territorial thing. I guess the other challenge comes down to drivers and motivations, right? So right. You're, when you're in, when you deal with your customer, their drivers and motivations can be price, as an example. But that's not necessarily the driver or the motivation of the consumer or the, or the user of the service. It's getting the balance right. Yeah. It's, get, it's, it's making sure that you are addressing those business requirements and you are addressing whether it's value for money, but you're also addressing the consumer's uh, expectations, which is just simple service. Mm-hmm. You know, give me something that works. I don't care who, you know, who's supplying the service or who you are. I just want it to work to be able to do my job. Uh, I run a series called Shed Talks and I was chatting to Richard Shenton who's run some significant kind of transformation programs and he Mm. said it's quite interesting because when you hear people talk about transformation they only think about it as sort of the first or the second level Uh, and he said and that's where you kind of go oh why do we call it transformation why do we need this but he said what's really transformative is when you get to the third level and those those clients or customers come back to you and say look you're brilliant stuff that we don't actually get from you so let's say it's something in supply management you're brilliant Mm. at warehouse management could you come and help us could you help us understand how to do warehouse management better or we're really impressed with your asset optimization of your energy consumption Mm. could you come and advise us and how you do that so kind of that Mm. that you, you cross over that line and it's no longer just the connection on the product or the service you provide they see you they see the value that that relationship brings to help their organization be successful does that resonate with you do you recognize that a hundred percent it's you know and it depends upon the size of your customer as well so if they are for example and i'm talking b2b Mm -hmm. if they are larger larger organizations that you're working with and supplying services to they will want that strategic partnership once a strategy is is formulated, they have the resources to actually realize it at a ground level. Whereas if you work with some of the smaller ones, let's talk about the smaller hospitals and health services as an example, mm-hmm. they necessarily don't have the resources to be able to do it all. So they're looking not only for a strategic partnership, but also a delivery partner. Yeah. So, you know, that, so your proposition actually changes depending mm. upon the size of your customer. So, mm. But completely what you, what, you know, what you said before, like resonates with me a hundred percent. There are similarities, but clearly we've highlighted there 
um, some some major differences between working directly with you know end customers as a an automotive dealership right versus working in B two B slightly back through the chain. As you've been talking, I mean, you, you say you work in in the public sector. You're very much in service of the civilian and the in the community. I want to talk about something that you've got involved. I want to understand why you got involved and, and, and what you're hoping to achieve. And that is women in technology. Because we've spoken about this briefly before. Do you want to just give us an appreciation in terms of what this uh, not-for-profit uh, entity is? Yeah, it's been um, established since um, 1992. And I hope I'm right, considering I'm on the board. <laughs> Uh, of this organization so it's a not-for-profit organization that was actually set up by a group of women when they realized that there isn't a lot of support for women in STEM. The whole ethos of the organization is building a community that actually supports and empowers and unlocks potential of women in STEM. So a lot of our activities are geared around giving professional support to, to women in STEM in the form of mentorship or we uh, and we have a board readiness program as well that we run and I guess my reason for joining this organization is because I have you know three girls and and two boys wow it's a very it's a very busy time on any given day so uh, you know I've always been conscious of the fact that when we set rules in our house, we make sure that we explain to the girls, it's not because you're a girl and they're boys, you're younger. I've always made it a point at home to ensure that our boys understand there is no difference Mm -hmm. between them and and the girls. So I want to ensure that we kind of of build a society where my children grow up and they don't have to fight for this diversity and inclusivity in what is going to become an extremely digital economy, right? I want them to be part of that conversation Mm -hmm. and without having to fight for a voice. That's basically, that was one of the biggest reasons why I Mm. wanted to join women in technology to make a difference. I was talking with a not-for-profit training company in the UK and they said they're noticing actually that parts of society are are struggling there's a bit of a gulf between and, and it tends to be kind of to do with affluence but also they've noticed gender there seems to be some issues with digital availability rather than capability but actually access to mm. digital for certain parts of society. Is, is that a theme? Is that something you've noticed as well? Yeah, there's still, you know, there's still connectivity issues in rural and remote places in Australia. And you would think technology actually bridges that gap, but it hasn't. So mm-hmm. it's not only, the, there's not only a gap in terms of the skill sets and the capabilities, there's actually a gap in terms of just basic infrastructure. Sure. And is that commercial drivers behind that? Is it just not cost effective to reach some of the rural areas? And, and how, how does that affect women specifically? I think it affects the community more than just women. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that's not an issue that is just felt by women. It's, it's a community issue. And, you know, especially when you talk about the health sector, not having the right connectivity in, in certain, certain regions, you can't actually have virtual care, as an example, right. which is becoming, you know, which is becoming so important. 
I guess the other big thing is that it holds an entire community back in terms of being engaged in that digital economy or being engaged in those digital conversations if you don't even have access to basic infrastructure. I can see how that is a big challenge. I mean, that's a worthy board to be on. And I can see how there's a lot of work you're going to have to do, not, not, not on your own, I'm sure, working with telecoms companies and government departments, trying to make sure that some of those things that perhaps you don't even think about, connectivity, are still very, very precious and they need to be developed in, in different communities. We advocate for the women and in regional, rural and remote, they don't have access to a lot of facilities or support. I think that women's support you would have in metro regions. For us to be able to deliver our services in those areas, connectivity would help. So we can run our courses or, you know, our the offerings that we basically have. If, mm-hmm. For us to be able to take it outside of metro regions, it would assist if we have better connectivity, essentially. But I was talking about it more in terms of just general healthcare. No, I can see that. It would seem a travesty if the reason that somebody isn't able to get healthcare is because we can't do something as simple as get a digital connection to them. Therefore, can't see, they can't understand if they've got an issue and actually they can't receive that kind of virtual treatment that can obviously help prevent, you know, the escalation of, of issues. So it blows your mind really when you think where we are and that's actually, the, that's the very, that's the, the thing that's actually holding us back. I think probably something every organisation can take responsibility for when they're considering their digital transformation is just to think by doing this, are we leaving any of our customers or our citizens adrift? And if we are, then this isn't the right solution. We need to rethink it. Correct. Yes. And uh, sorry, Christopher, I just want to correct when WIT was founded. I incorrectly stated that it was founded in 1992, but it was actually 1997. Well, look, this has been um, a great conversation. I think we've we've been around many different spaces here. Um, a bit wiggly like your career, as you said. So uh, huh. um, every topic, it just when we un- when I unpack it with you, it's just such a richness of considered and conscious discussions so i'm very grateful for you you sharing that and i'm sure it will provide a lot of inspiration and probably spark a lot of new thinking with people as well as they listen to this podcast so thank you so much for your time today thank you thank you for asking me to be part of uh, your podcast it's been really interesting i've really enjoyed the examples and you know the conversations that you've had with other people and how you brought it in into this conversation that we've had that in itself like I've learned a lot as well so thank you well uh, and, and, and likewise I think others will reflect on what they hear today and be able to connect it with their own challenges as well so uh, so, so thank you for that and I'm sure we'll see you as you are very much someone who likes to give back to the community I'm sure we'll see you on on many platforms mm. taking the sector forward um, as you do so well already so thank you for that Thanks, Christopher. Okay, I'll let you go. Thank you so much, Gunjan. Take care. Bye-bye. Ciao. Bye.